Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Throughout her academic career, Dr. Mansick became intrigued by the idea that children desperately need us to accept their feelings and to respect them as the small humans that they are. She states that, quote, my dedication to children and families was born long before my doctoral level training, end quote. Her approaches to therapy seek to understand how an individual's unconscious attitudes and anxieties, as well as their early life experiences, presently impact their lives. She teaches the importance of the parent-child relationship by emphasizing respect and acceptance of feelings. She strives to support parents, individuals, and couples struggling with infertility and loss and individuals battling perinatal mental health. Dr. Hillary helps parents understand what's helpful for kids and why it's hard for us as parents to execute, even if we know what we should do. We talk about all of this and more. You're going to love it. Here's our discussion with Dr. Hillary Manzik. Hi, Dr. Manzik. It's good to have you here. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited. So I'm going to start by asking some get to know you questions. This is always fun. The first question I want to ask you is please fill in the blank. Motherhood is. So for me, motherhood is both the most amazing and the hardest thing I've ever done. No doubt. No doubt. And it's always ebbing and flowing. Like there's no consistency with it. And right when you figure out something change, you're exactly right. Yes. And it's different between kids as well. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly having to reframe and reinvent and just, you know, all that stuff. Yes. And I think it's funny because you can get really confident when you have one kid, you're like, oh, this is how this works. And then you have another kid and you're like, oh, I did not know what I thought I knew. I know you were supposed to be like the last one. Right. Right. (laughs) What is going on? Well, I completely agree with you. What do you value most in a friendship? This is a great question. So I think for me, it's authenticity, right? I want to be able to show up as me without any hesitation. And I want my friends to be able to do the same. So like if we have plans on a Thursday night and you are feeling like, you know what? I just need to sit and stare at a wall. I want the kind of friendships where you can text me and be like, you know what? I love you, but tonight I need to stare at a wall. And I'm going to be like, I get that. And that's when it comes stare at a wall with me. <laughs> yes, exactly. But just, you know, where we can really be ourselves and we can get our needs met and not feel like you have to be somebody else. And I think that's just so important in a friendship. Right. You, I, I agree. You don't want to be a chameleon. You don't want to have to shift based on the crowd that you're with. You just yep. want to be your authentic, consistent self with each person. And it's harder to find than it seems. I yes. mean, it, to have, to have that just real connection is, is a lot harder to find. I agree. And I think for women, you know, we were socialized to be people pleasers. So I think for a lot of us on our reparenting journeys and our healing journeys, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do I not worry more about the person next to me than myself? Right. Mm. I know that's work I'm still doing. Yeah. The judgment piece. I know that that plays a lot into my insecurities is the fear of criticism and judgment from other people. If only I could just screen that out, I would be on top of the world. (laughs) Right. Wouldn't we all? I I agree. So agree. What is the most daring thing you've ever done? So I went skydiving when I was 19. So I'd put that up there, but I would also say that starting two businesses with two little kids for the first one and three little kids at the second one was pretty daring. That's up there for me. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So, okay. We have to pick this apart really quickly. One by one skydiving. What was your experience like? So, well, and it's funny because at the time, you know, our brains don't develop fully till we're what 28. So I was like, yes, this is amazing. It's a perfectly good idea. And my dad was like, why would you want to do that? (laughs) Why not? You know, 
I had no fear, which is just wild to me now because I would never do it now. But yeah, I, I tandem jumped out of an airplane with, and I had to go out backwards because of the way that we were strapped together. So I had to like literally just like stand there and fall and trust that I was going to make it to the ground. Bye guys. Yeah. (laughs) And I had no fear. It's just, it's really wild. So, so that was, that was cool. The first minute you just like free fall and it's, it's so cool. And then you just get to glide and like, look at everything. So it was really fun. I did it with a bunch of college friends. Oh, that sounds amazing. And then you started two businesses. That is extremely daring. How? With two kids? With two kids. So to be fair, I had runway because my, so we moved from Virginia to North Carolina because that's where both of our families are. I grew up here. And so rather than getting a job here, I said, you know what? I want to start a practice. And at that point I had really fallen in love with perinatal mental health and I was pursuing training there. So I kind of had a niche, which helped. And there's so many great business courses out there now that were not available back when I was in grad school. They don't teach you how to run a therapy practice. They teach you how to do therapy, right? But the business side of it was lacking. So I had some great online resources and the runway from my partner to make it happen. And so, yeah, so I just, I did it. And that was when we were not telehealth yet. So I had an office and everything and I, it felt so great to sort of create my own thing. And then since the pandemic, and then of course I had a third child. So now my whole practice is telehealth, but I do still see perinatal mental health clients pretty much exclusively now. I used to see kids as well, but that doesn't work really well over telehealth. Yeah. So it's been great. And then my second business that I have just recently, like within the last six months started is an online parenting support business. And this is just my passion project because I'm so passionate about helping people parent in a way that feels good for them and for their kids. And so this has become sort of my spinoff. And I, I still, I think the businesses overlap. I talk a lot about parenting because if your parenting doesn't feel good, then you don't feel good. Right. And so I think there's a lot of overlap there between parenting and perinatal mental health. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm hoping to offer some courses come the fall in the online parenting space. And I have a podcast and Yeah. So it's been really cool, but yeah, I've done all of this without childcare and it's just, I mean, I have childcare when I see my clients, but that's it. So it's been an adventure. Wow. That is admirable and inspirational and scary all at the same time. (laughs) Yes. The scary part for sure. It's been a ride, but I, I am so happy and I just feel like this is what I'm meant to do, you know, but we need to make the listeners aware. It wasn't easy, right? Absolutely not. No. Okay. And then now the therapy practice, I will say, I do think having a niche and the niche that I have there is such a need. So staying full with therapy clients hasn't been hard once I kind of built my network here. So that's been, you know, and I don't think that's necessarily so much me and all the marketing I did because I didn't do that much. It was more that there is such a need. And with the pandemic, there's been even more of a need. Mm. So that part has been easier than I anticipated. But the online business has been harder than I anticipated. Social media, all of that does not, like, I don't like social media. So, but I do it because I do find that it's helpful for people and it's nice to connect. Like I've actually made some friends on Instagram, but at the same time, it could be a whole full-time second job right? and you don't get paid to do Instagram. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole thing. Yes. Absolutely. And when you said you can get insecurity in your parenting from the different sources out there, I I really related to that. I, I find myself in that space. I mean, we went from a generation where there was limited parenting resources. I mean, there were just a few books that people would resource. And then in fast forward into today, we have an abundance of information out there. Overload overload, accessible over the internet. People mm-hmm. read all of these books. And speaking from my own experience, I read the books, I go online and I read the blogs and all of this stuff crisscrosses. And I'm like, but this parenting style says to do this. And this one says this, how do I know how to discipline my child so that they grow up to be the best adult that they can be? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. There's so much out there and everyone has a spin on it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what I try to bring, and I don't know how successful I am, but this is my goal. I really try to create a safe place for parents and 
we're going to talk about what is helpful for kids. We're going to ground that in the research, but we're also going to talk about why it's hard for us as parents to execute on that, even if we know that's what we should do. Like, like what gets in the way? And what can we do with that? Like, that's where the work is, right? And so like, and to create a safe space to say like, hey, I teach this stuff and I am messing up daily right alongside you. The goal is not to get to a place where you don't make mistakes. And I think that message, that mindset shift was a game changer for me as a parent. So that's what I try to bring. It sounds amazing. It sounds exactly what I need because I really feel now that my kids are older, I they probably can see when I'm wavering back and forth, unsure of exactly how to implement a certain consequence or. Yeah. And you know what? I am a big fan of, you know, I talked about authenticity and friendships. I'm a big fan of authenticity in the parent-child relationship too. And the beautiful part about raising kids who get to be themselves is that we do too. And so I'm a big fan of saying to your child, you know what? I'm honestly not sure what to do in this moment. And I'm going to take some time to think about it. Or, you know what, we decided this, but then we thought about it and decided that's not the best plan. So we're going to do this today. And just to include your child in that, because that makes you human. And that lets your child know that, you know what, you are thinking through this, trying to be the best parent you can. You're not always going to get it right. I think that's just such a beautiful thing. You know, like we Mm, get to show up warts and all just like our kids do. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into this discussion as we work through our time with you. But it it sounds like it's making it less of a dictatorship with your kids, more like a democracy where you're yes. getting them involved in the entire process. Yes. Collaboration. Yes, okay. 100%. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. So you, you spoke a little bit earlier about your 19 year old self going and skydiving, but I'd like to know what advice you would give your younger self. If you look back, you can go even younger than 19 if you want. Yeah, no, this is such a great question. I thought about this one and I'm like, you know, I would go back and tell my younger self, I mean, as young as like two, I would tell myself it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel your feelings, lean in because we were the generation that was told, get up, brush it off. You're fine. Don't cry. Right. And so we were taught to move away from our feelings. And now as adults, we still have those tendencies, right? Like I'm going to binge Netflix instead of feeling what I'm feeling right now, or I'm going to have a glass of wine or, you know, not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but we often want to numb out or avoid or we feel guilty for the way we feel, or we don't know how to do the right things with them. Like how many times do you get into an authentic relationship, say with your partner, and all of a sudden you're arguing because you never dealt with conflict before. And so having those skills, because when we were mad as kids, most of us growing up in the eighties and nineties, we were punished for those mad feelings instead of taught how to be with them and do the right things in spite of them. So if I could give my younger self some advice, I would say, just lean into the feelings. It's okay to have feelings. And it's what we do with them that really matters. Absolutely. Being raised in the generation that we were raised in, it was more, you do what your parents say Mm -hmm. and that's it. Now, Dr. Manzik, you are a licensed psychologist with 15 years of experience supporting children and families. You're also a mother to three young children yourself. I would love to know how you found yourself pursuing a career as a psychologist. Did you know this at a young age that this was something you wanted to do? It's a great question. And no, I did not. I, I think I always knew I wanted to help people. So I actually went into college pre-med, took all the sciences because I was going to be a pediatrician and realized somewhere around organic chemistry that I did not love the science (laughs) part of it, right? Like I got through it, but not my favorite. So I went to UNC and when I went to orientation, they said, if you're pre-med, don't major in bio or chem. They want to see that you are a well-rounded person. So pick something else that you like. Still didn't pick psychology, pick journalism. And I was actually on an advertising track. So I was going to go, I don't know what I thought I was going to do, go to New York and like work for an ad agency, but that's the track I was on. And I picked up psych as an elective. I actually took Psych 101 and I thought it was going to be such an easy class. It was not. It was my first C in college because I didn't prepare. Like I I got better grades in the sciences because I knew those were going to be hard. Psych 101 was surprisingly hard. It's a lot of theory and a lot of information. Mm -hmm, But as part of that class, I had to, we had to go to a talk in the community, which had to find some random talk and go listen and write a paper on it. And I ended up at the Lucy Daniels Center, which is in Cary and there was a pediatrician who was speaking about 
children's development and you know, sort of like the beginnings of respectful parenting. And this was back in the early 2000s. And I was hooked. I was like, yes, like this is my stuff. And so I called the Lucy Daniel Center and I said, can I intern with you? And they're like, well, we don't really do that, but sure. And I'm like, we'll just kind of wing it. And so I did an internship with them. So I was helping the teachers in an early intervention kindergarten classroom. So for kids who were getting kicked out of preschool for aggressive behaviors or kids on the spectrum, and just kids who needed a little more support in a preschool setting. And I loved it. That was amazing. So that was kind of the start of my psych career. And then I took more and more psych classes and picked it up as a second major. And then after I graduated, I worked one year at the Lucy Daniels Center. And then I worked up in New Hampshire at a residential treatment center for kids who'd gotten kicked out of schools and needed a little more support than they could, like they couldn't really hang in their communities without a little extra support. And so I was a counselor there. And through that experience, I realized this is what I want to do. You know, I want to do the clinical side of things. And so I, I wasn't sure which degree I wanted. There's so many ways you can be a therapist. You can get a counseling degree. You can become a social worker. So I wasn't sure which one I wanted to do. So I did a nine-month master's at Harvard at their graduate school of education because it was all facets of mental health, advocacy, research, and the clinical side. It was essentially the first year of a counseling program. And I loved that, but that made it really, really clear that I did want to be a therapist. And so from there, I applied to psychology programs. So doctoral programs in psychology and ended up at GW. Once I knew that's what I wanted to do, it was a very fast track. And so it's funny because my first day I went to GW and I had an interview and they said, why are you here? And I'm like, cause I want to help people. And they're like, no, no, honey, why are you really here? And what I realized is, you know, it's not just that I want to help people. You know, I was interested in understanding the family system. I grew up in a household where, you know, I give my dad all the credit in the world because he was hit with a belt and he knew I want to break that cycle. He never hit us, but he also never learned to regulate emotions. Cause I mean, they were hitting him when he was quote unquote misbehaving. So he would get really dysregulated and he would yell. And I think I wanted to understand why? You know, and now I really do. I understand his trauma. I understand all of that. And then there are cycles now that I'm trying to break. So it's kind of come full circle, especially as I get into this parenting work. But it's just funny because I hadn't done therapy for myself up until that point. Of course, I got into it as I did the program, but there were just so many layers to why I ended up as a psychologist. I think that's true for all of us in mental health. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, psychology in general, it's like peeling back an onion. You mentioned the layers. (laughs) There's so many layers as you dive into the human psyche and our emotions and traumas that we've been through. I mean, it's all interconnected and interwoven and impacts so many aspects. What I recognize in your story and want to give you props for is you are clearly a go-getter. I mean, you created an internship for yourself. So that's amazing. And then you said, once I realized this is what I wanted to do, it happened quickly. And, you know, you figured out what you wanted and you went after it. And I think that that's really amazing and a testament to you and your personality and the role that you likely play in your patients' lives, I'm I'm sure. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I know that you recently got your certificate in perinatal mental health from Postpartum Support International, which means you've acquired specialized knowledge and training so that you can more effectively support new parents who are struggling. And we know that a lot of new parents are struggling, a lot of them. What led you to pursue this additional certification? So I think, honestly, like most people, most providers in perinatal mental health, I came by it honestly. I don't think, and this is probably true for both of you as well, but I don't think you can really know how crazy the transition to parenthood is until you go through it. And there's not a lot out there to prepare you for that. There's a lot to prepare for the birth and to prepare for, you know, a baby registry but from the mental health and like the identity side of it, there's not a lot out there. And that's something I'm trying to change and I'll get back to that. But yeah, I mean, so when I had my first child, I was ready to have this like unmedicated birth, this just like kumbaya experience. And turns out he was breech. And so I had to have a C-section. So like the opposite of the birth I wanted. And then I wanted to breastfeed and he had a tongue tie, which 
thankfully we caught and got the right help and the right support at the right time. But the first two weeks of his life was just a constant struggle. And so, and nobody told me that it was going to be like that. And then I think also sleep deprivation and your hormones are shifting. And I wouldn't say that I fell into a depression, depression, but I was certainly headed there. And I think, so what we know is that if you want to breastfeed, but you can't, that's a risk factor for mental health issues. And also if you're feeling forced to breastfeed, both of those things can lead to mental health issues. But just biologically, if you stop breastfeeding in the first three or four months, your hormones will drop really quickly. And that leaves you really vulnerable to depression and anxiety. So if I hadn't gotten the right breastfeeding support at the right time, I think I would have gone into a pretty dark depression. I definitely was headed that way. And, and I was able to sort of come out of it because I did get that support. But then I had a miscarriage in between my first and second kids. And so that was a whole thing. You know, once you go through that, it's like the innocence of pregnancy is kind of rocked for you. And so then I had postpartum anxiety with my second, I think as a result of that, going through that loss. And so I realized I was just like, man, parents need a lot of support. Like this is intense. And as I connected with more moms and friends and heard more stories, it just became apparent to me, everybody's got a story. Nobody has this perfectly like smooth sailing reproductive journey. And if you had that, maybe you really struggle with breastfeeding or you have a developmental delay or something else that you're dealing with. And it's just really hard. So I found Postpartum Support International through a colleague and then did their training. They are amazing. It's an amazing organization. And yeah, and I just, I really love what I do. Every day I feel like I am helping people get back to parenting in a way that feels good, whether I'm doing therapy or through the parenting business, like that's ultimately my goal. And it's just been really amazing to be able to be on this journey with people. Yeah. What you're doing is so incredibly important. And I wish that it was something every new parent had not shoved in their face, but shoved in their face. Yes. (laughs) I know. Like (laughs) um, in in a very gentle, welcoming way. Right. It's something, I mean, I had so much shame around the idea of needing therapy and not, you know, the fact that I had postpartum anxiety and and I felt the need to try to hide it and brush it under the rug Mm -hmm. and power through because I'm a power through kind of person. And I, 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 I feel like things would be so different if it was just par for the course, you know, it was just, is, it was an accepted form of postpartum treatment. And it was just something that everybody received. So what your work is so incredibly important. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of psychologists, but I've never asked this question before. And I have always wanted to, (laughs) so I'm, I'm going to ask you, how does being a psychologist impact your own personal relationships? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of friendships and, you know, if you have a partner as a parent, like, do people look at you differently? Do they respond to you differently? Do you find yourself like therapying? Is that a word? Therapy, <laughs> right, right. Th- <laughs> Being a therapist to yourself sometimes? Yes. I'm so glad you asked because I think it does make a difference in how people see you. So it, it was the running joke in my husband's family while we were dating that he was my experiment, you know, like that was just kind of the joke. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, I will occasionally get the, so are you analyzing me right now question, but in general, I find that when I, you know, in close relationships, it's honestly, it's a benefit because I spend so much of my time thinking about how we think and how we interact. The hardest part is, you know, when I can't turn it off. Right. And I, I just mm-hmm. want to be in the moment and I'm sort of I had a friend tell me once years ago, he's like, you're always here in the moment. And also like kind of up here looking down on the moment at the same time. And I was like, wow, that's so true. And that's definitely not always a good thing. And as a parent too, I, I feel for my husband parenting with me because he's a great dad. He's, he's amazing. However, parenting is what I'm doing for a living. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking all the time about how to teach this stuff and always getting new ideas about what works and what doesn't. And so I feel like I'm a hard person to parent with in that sense. So I try to give him more space to to mess up because I think sometimes it's fine if I make a mistake, but he can't, you know? And so I, that dynamic, you know, that's something we've had to work on or I've had to work on. 
but so yeah, I mean, it definitely comes in, but I also feel like in my close relationships, it's just, I am the same person in a therapy session as I am with my friends and family. And I don't think that's certainly not the way we were trained. And that's not to say that I'm like sharing everything about my life with my clients, but I am me in my sessions. And with perinatal mental health, unlike other therapies that I've done with people, when I'm working with a perinatal client, sometimes it can be really healing for someone to hear, you know what, I had a C-section too, and I didn't want one. And it was hard. And I worked through it. Just to have that you're not alone piece can be so huge in the perinatal population. So for me, I feel like I do show up really authentically in my sessions. And that's just, that's who I am in my other relationships too. And so I feel like that becomes less of a thing as I get to know people more. I will say my oldest, who always, he says things every day that just blow my mind, but he's seven and a half. And about a year ago, he was disappointed about something. And I came in and I was like, oh, you know, it's okay to be disappointed about this. And he looks at me and he's like, you know, what I need right now is daddy to read me another story, not a therapy session. (laughs) So I was like, okay, all right, cool. So, you know, and also if I do, when I do like get frustrated or like speak harshly, both of my older kids will still sometimes look at me and be like, you know, you're a psychologist and psychologists aren't supposed to talk to their kids like that. (laughs) Okay, you're right. I'm sorry. So there is that. <laughs> I, I always wondered if your spouse or your children kind of held you to a higher standard too. So yes. that kind of answered that a little bit. I, th- I think, and I think my partner does too. I think he definitely, there are moments where he's like, wait a minute. And I'm like, look, I'm human. <laughs> like I am not, <laughs> like I lose my ish sometimes too. So are there ever the situations where the kids will do something and you're both stumped? And your partner looks at you and he's like, basically his eyes are just screaming. What do we do now? (laughs) Yes. Yes. And there are times when both of us are like, I don't know. We need a minute. You know, it's funny. I talked to parents. I just did a podcast interview with someone on how to talk to kids about sex. And yet when I was pregnant with my third and my then six-year-old was like, so where do babies come from? I definitely had a moment where I was like, oh my God, why is this just me? Where, where, where is my partner? Like, why is it just me in this room? And I have to answer this question, keep it together. But I did. I was very proud of myself. So I had the feelings and then I kept it together and gave him the answer that I would hope, but it was not easy. You know, it's definitely, I still had those, oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared for this kind of feelings. That's so, so. funny because we just have gone through that as well. We have two girls, so it kind of falls on me to have the talks because the girls open up a little bit more with me being Mm -hmm. a female. And uh, yeah, I had those feelings as well. Why is it always me to get the difficult (laughs) parenting situations, right? What's happening? Exactly, exactly. Well, we've already discussed how one of your big areas of focus is on helping parents navigate the transition to life with a new baby. And we've reiterated so many times already without a doubt that this is one of the most challenging life altering phases that a family can go through. Yes. In your experience, what elements of this transition cause the greatest difficulties for families? That is such a good question. And I think, I think it's a lot of things. I think one is the fact that you are thrust into this situation where you're keeping this tiny human alive and None of us have practiced with that. I don't care if you babysat, I, mean, I babysat tons, but it is not the same thing. And it's 24 seven and you are so sleep deprived, oftentimes from the get-go, right? Because you've been up laboring for hours or you had surgery or, you know, whatever it is, like you're not well rested coming into it. And then your hormones are going crazy and you're trying to learn not only how to take care of this child, but you might be trying to learn breastfeeding or if breastfeeding's not going well, you're trying to figure out which formula doesn't upset your baby's stomach. And then there's this whole identity piece because you were this one person before and you change, I think, when you become a parent. And nobody really talks about that. And most of the time we can find and connect with pieces of who we were before, but we're never gonna quite be that same person. And I think most of us would say, you wouldn't trade who you are now for anything but there's a process to get there. And so it's Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're in this sleepy haze where you're 24 seven on call with this little baby. And also there's so much conflicting information about sleep and 
if you did want to breastfeed, if you don't have the right support at the right time and you have an issue, you won't be able to, like it just, it won't work without that support. And so there's, if you, if that was important to you, there's a lot of implications there. And then there's the whole partner elements. If you're doing this, I mean, if you're doing it alone, that's just hard on its own. It's a whole different kind of hard. But if you're doing this with a partner, there's so much that changes in that relationship too, that nobody talks about. And then you're trying to navigate this together, but you feel like ships passing in the night. And it's just, it's a lot. And again, I think it's the fact that we are not prepared because you don't know that you need to prepare for this. It's not, you know, it's not a pain point at the, when you're pregnant, because you don't have a clue what is coming for you. And there's not an easy way to help people understand that. It's all of those things that just makes it a really challenging time. Yes. We are pretty open, my husband and I, sharing that with each child, we have two girls. So with each child, we ended up going to therapy because it was a time in our lives where the difference in communication was completely obvious. And just the the strain that it put on the dynamics of our relationship needed help. It wasn't lack of love. It wasn't, you know, and just normalizing that with couples that are introducing a new baby, that therapy and getting assistance throughout this process is good. It shouldn't be stigmatized. It shouldn't have negative connotations attached to it. You know, regardless of your situation, it's important. Yes, that is so, so true. And I think, you know, if I could go back and do it over, I would have sought therapy with, even with my first child, just for the transition and certainly for the postpartum anxiety with my second, even as a psychologist, I didn't see in myself that it was a real issue, right? I was like, oh, it's not that bad because that's not what, what we hear is postpartum depression is when you want to hurt your baby, which is actually not true. That's not actually part of postpartum depression. That is postpartum psychosis. And it is super, super rare. So what we hear and what we see on TV about postpartum depression is just not true. It's not accurate or it's not the whole story, right? And we don't even talk about postpartum anxiety. And then there's birth trauma and trauma. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be in the birth, right? Like, so with my third child, I had postpartum preeclampsia, which I never even had an inkling of that with my first two. So this came out of nowhere. And So I had to be readmitted in the hospital five days postpartum. And luckily I got to have my baby and my partner with me because it was at UNC, which is super friendly to all of that. But it was awful to have to leave my boys who I had just come home and been reunited with, and then to have to leave them for an undefined amount of time. And, you know, but my baby was full term and I was fine and she was fine. And preeclampsia doesn't always end that way for people. So even having it sort of mildly and postpartum with a full-term baby was really hard, even doing what I do. So I think there's so many things that can happen in the birth, after the birth that can be traumatic because our brains are already compromised because we're in this hormonal tornado. So we're vulnerable to trauma. And I think talking about that more is really important too, because those things affect you and they affect how you can show up in those early months postpartum. This episode is sponsored by Her Circle, the supportive and welcoming community for moms created by Her Health Collective. Her Circle is a welcoming and supportive community for moms who are passionate about making change for themselves, their families, the community, and the world. Together, this village of women are revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. From an active, private online community and the incredible daily chats hosted there, to our many virtual gatherings, including support groups, Moms Night Out, volunteer opportunities, book club, family adventures, coffee chats, and so much more. We love providing moms the chance to connect and create authentic relationships with one another. The network of experts in her circle are a phenomenal resource and provide great learning experiences for moms on topics ranging from women's health to parenting. We cover the issues that matter to moms the most, from virtual expert Q&As to one-on-one wellness minute consultations and support groups. We are committed to getting moms in front of the information, experts, and support they need most. 
To learn more about Her Circle, head to www.herhealthcollective.com slash her dash circle. We have a limited number of spaces and the doors only open a few times a year. So be sure to add your name to the no obligation waitlist so you are the first to know when the doors officially reopen. So talking about trauma, having expecting moms or moms that are preparing for pregnancy, understanding what could happen, understanding the transition. Are there other ways that parents can prepare for this huge life-changing event prior so, to have, to experiencing it? Yeah, yeah. So that is such a good question because I think that's what we need to be talking about. How can people prepare themselves as best as possible? And I will say my clients who have the best outcomes find me during pregnancy. I had a lot of people find me during the pandemic because that was just a time when we were all pretty anxious. And so finding me during pregnancy and having somebody support them through the transition. And I did have some that would have a traumatic birth or something come up, but we already had that relationship established. And so we do everything telehealth now. So it was so easy for them to just show up. They could be breastfeeding. They could be in their pajamas and just have the camera, even with camera off, right? But to be able to get that support was huge. I also offer, and this is sort of a new service, but I've just found that it's really helpful. I offer something called a perinatal mental health consultation. So it is just, it's a 60 minute virtual session. And usually I have both partners attend and we just talk through, you know, there's an evidence-based five things you can do every day that will help. And we're talking things like move your body, nutrition, try to get five consecutive hours of sleep, even if that means taking shifts, which is something nobody ever told me. And as a breastfeeding mom, I felt like it was all on me. Like I couldn't take shifts. So planning for that, that's just, that seems so simple, but that was something that would have been a game changer for me personally. And then doing something for you every day and getting outside. So those are the five things and just helping people think, okay, how am I going to build those in when I have a newborn? And then what are the signs to look for? because they're not what you might think. And did you know that partners can get postpartum depression or anxiety? So preparing both partners to look at each other and think, is this person suffering? Because you don't always know when you're in it, if it's you. And so just kind of helping them know, okay, this is what to look for. And also, like you said, go to therapy, like make that call, make that call now, if you want, even if things are going okay. And not just for the individual, but for the couple. Is there accommodations for people of different socioeconomic status to access therapy? Yeah. So I personally always keep, and they fill up quickly, but I always keep some low fee spots because I just think that's really important because I don't take insurance for a whole host of reasons, but I always keep a few very low fee spots and I don't do free because I think it's really important that whatever people can pay that they pay something because you want to be invested in the process. And there's some good research to support that, but very low fee. And then um, there's Open Path Collective, which is a great resource if you're looking for a therapist that will offer a low fee spot. So if I ever have those spots open, which like I said, I don't usually, but that's just because there's such a need, but I would go on Open Path and advertise those. So there are therapists doing that. And then there are therapists who do take insurance there's actually now a really amazing resource. It's a perinatal intensive outpatient program, which is really new, but super exciting. So those are my colleagues, Roxanne, Veronica, and Carolina. So that's a huge resource because before this, there wasn't anything like it from, I think, New Jersey to Florida, which is wild. So that's a great resource for someone who needs a little bit more of intensive support in that early postpartum time. So yeah, so those, those are definitely resources for people who may not be able to afford full cost out-of-pocket therapy. And then of course my intern, Sarah, Sarah is coming back in August and I think she's going to have 10 spots available. And there's other colleagues of mine who take interns as well. And I think that is just such a cool thing to do because we can offer those low fee spots, but we're still supervising. Well, and speaking of Sarah, she actually is the person who first connected me with you. Yes. Um, I was working on an article for a local news station about gentle parenting. I feel like you refer to it as respectful parenting. It's all really the same, but yeah, yeah I yeah. say respectful. Yeah. 
Well, I'd love to dive into this as a topic for just a bit. I feel like most of our listeners at this point are pretty well-versed in the concept, but if there's someone that's not, can you just give a very brief definition of gentle parenting or respectful parenting? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and again, I think, you know, there's a lot of names for it, gentle, respectful, conscious. I'm sure there's others peaceful parenting, right? But essentially the way I define it is it's a way of parenting where both parent and child get to show up authentically and both can get their needs met, right? So it's not just, I think the way we were raised, it was all about the parents getting their needs met and kids do as I say. And there's other ways of parenting where people might martyr themselves and it's all about the kids. And I don't think that's healthy either. I think true respectful parenting and a truly respectful relationship is where both people, both parent and child can show up authentically and they can learn and grow and make mistakes. And it's a safe space to do that. And both people can get their needs met. And I do think it's possible to parent in a way where your needs are met as the parent and you're meeting your child's needs. And of course, none of that needs to happen perfectly, but that's sort of how I would define it. I mean, based on that definition, I don't see how anyone can like argue with the value of that. However, I, I'm going to like merge a bunch of stories I've heard from different moms into like yeah. one make-believe story, but sure. let's say we have a mom, she has three kids and one of those kids is, is a wild one, just, you know, wild, rambunctious, testing the boundaries, doesn't really understand. No, just really pushes the limits. Mm-hmm. And this particular mom's response is, you know, I've tried all of these more gentle, conscious, peaceful parenting tactics, and it doesn't work for my child, my child, and maybe even speaking about one child in particular, like this child needs me to have more of a heavy hand or more disciplinary approach. Is peaceful parenting, gentle parenting, is it appropriate in every situation for every child, for every parent? Is there ever a time where a more, I don't, I don't know if I want to say disciplinarian, but a more disciplinarian approach is, is warranted. Wow. Yes. That is, that's a powerful question because I, I can promise you that these parents that you have merged into this question are not alone. I actually have one of those kiddos myself. Um, I think there's kind of two profiles we can look at here. There's the deeply feeling kid, right. Who, or, or like the sensitive child. There's a lot of different names for this kid, but this is a kid who feels things deeply. And I would say that's my oldest, right? He is just feels things really deeply. And I think for these kids, there can be sort of this sense of shame at how intense their emotions are. And so when we're in those intense emotional moments with them, it can feel like almost like we come too close to those feelings. They're afraid on an unconscious level that those big feelings are going to drive us away. Like if you really see what I'm feeling, if you see the real me, you're not going to like me. It's that fear, but it's not a conscious fear. And so these are the kids who will tell you to get away. Or when you try to tell them, oh, I see that you're mad. They don't want to hear it. That just almost makes it worse. And there's also the kid, and this is my middle kiddo, the sensory seeking kid who just, you know, he's, he doesn't fit the sensory profile in any other way. He's, he's not like afraid of loud noises. He's, he's not a sensory withdrawer. He's a sensory seeker. He needs to constantly be moving. He needs to constantly be touching things. And as he's gotten older, he's five now, he can articulate to me that sometimes I get this feeling. He has named it. We have a special name for it. This is when I get that feeling, I can't control my body. Like I want to, and I hear you saying these things that I can't control my body. And so I think those two profiles, and I'm sure there's tons more, but like, I think most kids would fit a little bit into one of those two categories. So I think those kids certainly pull for us to butt up against our own, like our own ingrained beliefs about parenting that come from how we were parented, which is that good kids should listen and it shouldn't be this hard. And this sensory seeking kid who's over here grabbing his sister's cheeks, which literally just happened at my son's second grade goodbye party. Like we're all trying to listen to the teacher and he's like grabbing his sister's cheeks, that that's bad behavior. Like that's where our brains go because that's how we were raised. So I think it's really hard actually to take a step back from that and recognize that these aren't bad kids. These are kids whose needs are a little bit different and just to recognize that part of why we feel that those kids may need a heavier hand in certain moments is because of our own programming and because we don't necessarily have the resources or the know-how in the moment 
to navigate that because it isn't easy. So I think to answer your question, I do think that this respectful approach can work for all kids, but I don't think it looks the same for all kids. And I think it can be a little more work intensive on our part in the beginning. So for example, with my sensory seeking child, I can tell him till the cows come home, hey, please stop touching your sister's cheeks. But that's a request, right? That's not a boundary. That's just me saying, hey, can you please stop doing this? And he can't, he, he physically can't. So I have to go to him and it would be easy for me to just pick him up angrily and be like, I told you 10 times. But what he really needs is for me to gently pick him up and say, I'm gonna help you stop because I can see that you can't stop on your own. So that's the boundary, right? I'm gonna be the physical boundary here. That is not easy. That's not easy when you're cooking dinner. That's not easy when you have two other kids to deal with. So I do think it's more work in those moments. But what I have found is that the more I do that for him, the more connected to me he feels. The more he feels like, oh, you get me. Oh, you don't think I'm bad. You don't think that this is a problem. You just get that this is me and I'm trying my best. And so the more that he sees that I can hold on to his inherent goodness, even in those really hard moments, the more he feels connected and the easier it gets. And the more I'm able to sort of cue with him without having to go to him, but it's not an overnight thing. It's many, many, many times. And it's times where I do lose my temper because I'm human and it's hard. And then I have to repair with him. And, and that's, but that's normal and healthy in a good parent-child relationship. You know, and then with the other, with the deeply feeling kid, some of that has just been feeling out what he needs. Sometimes it's sitting in silence while he's angry and he's screaming at me to get out of the room. And I'm going, you're not safe enough for me to leave. When your body is safe, I will stand on the other side of the door or I will go fold laundry and you can come to me whenever you need a hug. But for right now, you're not safe. I'm going to sit here with you. So it's feeling it out. And it's also, again, I think, again, on the front end, more labor intensive with some kids. But, yeah. and then this is, I hope to provide some courses and workshops specific to those kids, because I think, I think these parents can hear some of the typical advice and go, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> My kid hates when I say, are you feeling mad? Do they get too Absolutely. old to implement it? Is there a time when it's too late? I don't think so. Honestly, I, I think about a lot of my early work was with teens and I remember somebody saying to me on my first day at this job working with a bunch of teenage boys, they said, these are just little boys in big bodies. And truly they needed the same things. Now it would come out in a string of curse words, right? But like I called every name in the book, but what they needed was co-regulation and it just looks a little bit different. And I think all kids, doesn't matter how old they are, they need us to see them as good all the time and to understand behavior as communication even like the slamming of doors or the refusal to do things or the shutting us out. Like all of that is purposeful, not purposeful in a manipulative way, but purposeful in that it tells us something about how your child is doing in that moment. And I think even our teens need us to let them have space to share with us how they're feeling. And I do think that starts from an early age when we let them have their feelings, right? When we see them as good through those tantrums. But even if you haven't been doing a quote-unquote respectful parenting approach, if you've been using punishments, it's never too late to shift that. Literally, it is never too late. Even if you have an adult child, you could go to your adult child and say, you know what? We used punishments. That's what we thought was best for you. I realized that might've made you feel like a bad kid sometimes. And I just need you to know, I always knew you were a good kid and I'm really sorry. And how can, what can I do to make our relationship better? I mean, literally you could say that to your 30-year-old child. Wow. Wasn't that be something? <laughs> yeah. You mentioned how challenging this is. And we, we try very hard to incorporate gentle parenting in our home. And I know for me, as we do that work and attempt to do that, it is often demonstrated the areas in which I need to pursue my own reparenting and work through my own traumas it's the behaviors that are particularly triggering. The child engages in, be in a behavior and it, it, it triggers me. It triggers something within me. And that is when I have that snap reaction and I can't fall into what I've read and learned. And I know to work very well. I've seen it work very well. Would you say that that is accurate for most parents that, that there's that trigger and that need to kind of go back and reparent some of our own past issues and traumas? A hundred percent. Yes. I think that is so, so true. And I think if you could have a mantra, it would be for yourself and for your kid, it would be get 
curious. So like if you are losing it every time your child makes a mess and that is in full transparency, that's an issue that I struggle with, right? Like I see the mess and it triggers something in me. It's like, I feel so overwhelmed in that moment that I have a hard time stepping back and going, okay, you're five, you made a developmentally appropriate mess, right? Or my 16 month old, yeah, you crushed a bunch of goldfish on the floor. That's what toddlers do. Of course, I don't get mad at her. I'm not, I haven't gotten to the point where I lose it with her yet because she's still so young, but I do get overwhelmed with the mess and I'll be stressed and my kids pick up on that. And I'll say things like, clean this up, you know? And I realize that's my own stuff. What is it about mess that feels so triggering? So if I can get curious and say, what is this about? What was that like for me when I was younger? Did I feel like I couldn't make a mess? What was it about staying neat and tidy that had an appeal for me? Was it being in control, right? So I think when we can get curious about those things, then we can make progress. And whether that progress needs to be in therapy with a therapist or just reflecting on your own, or even letting your kids know, you know what? I know making a mess is part of being a kid. And yet sometimes when you make a mess, I get all stressed and I'm working on it. Just telling your child that can be so powerful. It's so funny that you use that as an example because that is my life right now. I've said it so many times. So we have a nine and a half and a 12 year old and they are both very crafty and they save everything. So (laughs) it's clutter. And just like you, I have that, that same emotion. And while you were talking, I was like, okay, step back. What is it about this stuff? And do you remember earlier when we had talked about judgment and criticism Mm -hmm. in my mind, I hear people criticizing our living environment, even though they're not even in our house. Yes. (laughs) You know, you are not alone in that. Yes. You know, and so I get it. I I go to the kids and I'm like, you need to pick this up. Let's, let's go around. We're going to do one room at a time and blah, 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 blah. So yesterday our oldest looks at me, she goes, if you didn't want mess, you shouldn't have had kids. And I was like, Oh, Oh, snap. Don't they shine a flashlight on like our biggest struggles? Like, wow, that is so powerful. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. That was a a wake up moment, but yeah, your website, you mentioned that you help many parents wrestle with managing tantrums. This is definitely a phase. The vast majority of parents will go through at some point. And I can honestly say they don't really go away until the child. I mean, we still experience tantrums with our kids being a bit older. Can you talk to us about a tantrum from a kid's perspective? What what's going on in their minds? Yes. Okay. This is such a good question. And I'm actually going to flip this and talk about it from our perspective. Cause I think as adults, this is the most helpful way to understand our kids, but anyone listening, like think back in your mind to the last time you had an adult meltdown, right? Like that moment where you lose your ish, when you see that you're out of coffee and this it's morning? not about the coffee. Okay. Right. <laughs> like mine was this week too. So like this weekend, so you are not alone, but you know, it's the coffee or you look in the fridge and you realize you didn't defrost dinner or it's something small in the grand scheme of things, but it's like that thing is the literal last thing you can take before you completely lose it. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the same thing with our kids. And when you think about, let's just say a two-year-old, they are constantly having to do things that are new to them. Everything they do is new to them. They are not good at anything because they are new at being human. And so like every day we're doing new things, like we're getting dressed and we're giving them more responsibility. And can you carry this? Can you do this? And they want to do it themselves. And so like, we're not talking about necessarily anything that we would necessarily think of as stressful for our kids. It's just normal doing life stuff that builds up this stress. And Janet Lansbury has this awesome analogy of a tea kettle, where at some point that tea kettle's got to let off steam. And so when your child melts down because you gave them the red cup and that's what they asked for, but suddenly they don't want the red cup, which we're like, ah, like, what is that? That is just the straw that broke the camel's back. And in that moment, nothing feels right for your kid and they just need to let off some steam. And actually think about with our own adult moments, don't we feel better after we have that good cry over the silliest little thing? We needed to let that out. Same thing with our kids they actually are really good at offloading their stress at 
the intervals that they need to. And you're going to see tantrums more frequently when, say, your child gets a new sibling or they start a new school or they drop their nap because these are stressful events for them. And so if you see tons more tantrums, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That means your child is appropriately offloading that stress because they're experiencing it at a higher level during that transition. So tantrums are actually really healthy. And this is why like, I struggled so much when I was seeing all the news about the royal family and their little boy having a meltdown in public and like, oh, what should she have done differently? And I'm like, it's normal for kids to have meltdowns. Like, it's normal. And if we can start to look at it as this healthy offloading of feelings, I think we will see it so differently. But it can be hard because, I mean, first of all, if we're not comfortable sitting with our own feelings, it can be really uncomfortable from like an emotional and a sensory perspective to sit with a screaming child. So that's hard. And also we hear all these narratives, like if I was a good mom, he wouldn't be doing this. This lady over here is judging me. I need to get my child to behave. That's my measure as a good parent. And guess what? That's not the measure of a good parent. How your child behaves, not a measure of your parenting, which I know sounds wild. But how your child behaves is a measure of how they are doing inside emotionally, not how you are parenting. And so when we can like welcome those feelings and just say, oh yeah, this is really hard and not go back on the boundary, right? If you say, oh, you can't get a toy at Target today and that's why your child melts down. You don't go back and get the toy. You just sit there and hold space. I know, gosh, I get it. You really wanted a toy today. I hear you. Not gonna let you hit me. Gonna stop your hand, right? So it's that. And the more we do that for our kids, I do think over time, the fewer meltdowns we will see. And also as they grow and they get better at managing their stress. But yeah, my seven and a half year old still has his moments. Like he's finishing second grade and his best friend is moving away. This is the kid we heard about all year. And he really liked his teacher and just all of those things together. It was a stressful weekend for him. He was sad. And I don't think he was fully aware of that until he kind of got mad at his brother. It came out that way. And then we talked about it. Yeah. I I want to take this back to something that you just said and reiterate it for our listeners. Your child's behavior is not a reflection of your parenting. It's a reflection of what's going on inside them. Yep. hundred percent. That is beautiful. Oh my gosh. Isn't that freeing too? Like it's just so freeing. You started talking about sibling rivalry and I would love to just dissect that a little bit and hear what any, uh, some type of advice that you might have that you might offer parents when it comes to tantrums, sibling rivalry, aggressive behaviors from their children. Yes. Well, my biggest piece of advice is to go listen to my podcast because actually this week's episode is on sibling dynamics. So I'm doing a four week summer series and I was thinking, okay, what do parents need over the summer? So the first one is on managing summer boredom. Last week's was screen time. This week is independent play. So how do you get your kid to play by themselves more? And then next week is siblings. We often don't see sibling dynamics through the lens that is reality. We see it through our, the lens of our upbringing, which is that conflict is bad and that it needs to be avoided at all costs. So here's the mindset shift. It's normal for kids to fight. They are not fighting because they don't like each other. They're not fighting because they won't be friends in 20 years or the fact that they're fighting doesn't mean that they won't be friends in 20 years. They are not fighting because their relationship is lacking it's normal for them to have conflict because they are two different people. And this is how they learn to manage conflict. And if we come in and we punish both kids and we separate them every time there's a conflict, they're gonna learn exactly what we learned, which is conflict is bad, avoid it at all costs. And if you have a relationship where there's conflict, you you leave, right? (laughs) Like that's what they're gonna learn. But that's actually not what we want them to learn. We want them to have conflict resolution skills. And so I actually said to my kids, I don't know where I came up with this, but I just had this light bulb moment and then it turned into a light bulb moment for them. But I said to them a couple months ago, I was like, look, you are both awesome kids. Like you're not the problem and you're not the problem. Do you know what the problem is? And they look at me, they're like, what, what's the problem? I said, the problem is that you don't yet know how to work through moments where you have two different ideas and those ideas clash. Like you don't know how to handle that yet because you don't have the skills and that's okay. You're kids. You're not supposed to have those skills. We're working on that. And they were like, light bulb. Like they were both so comforted by that because I do think they felt like it was them that was the problem up until that point. So the conflict isn't meant to be avoided. The conflict is meant to be a learning experience. 
And so as the parent, if we can get out of the role of referee, right, where we come in and go, you go to your room, you do this, you did bad, stop doing that. If we can instead come in as the sportscaster and say, I see a lot of big feelings in here. Or of course, if they're physically, you can separate them, right? But I really get that you two are both struggling. You had two different ideas. There's one truck and two of you. I wonder what you're going to do. So you come in with this attitude of both good kids having a hard time together versus one bad kid who's instigating or, I mean, that might be what we see, but there are two sides to every story. And it's funny because my, my husband and I were having this discussion. We were disagreeing about something and my son came to us in, in the middle of that literally yesterday and was like, well, there's two sides to every story. So, and I was like, yes, <laughs> like parenting win, you know, I'm over here laughing and I'm going to channel my inner Thelma by saying jinkies. Are you in my head? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like oh my you're gosh, saying great. everything that I'm dealing with right now. And just in general, what my mind does and, and not how I'm handling their arguments. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, of course. No, I think it's really hard. I think again, like we were all punished when we fought with our siblings and that's just what our parents knew. It's not that they didn't care. It's they did what they did their best. That's what they knew to do, but we know better now. So we can do something different. And I think what we know is empowering, right? Because it actually means we have to do less. We don't need to go in there and fix it. We need to keep them from, you know, hitting each other and whatnot. But outside of that, we don't have to fix it for them. And yes, there are times when I'll say it's too tricky to play together right now. Let's take a little break and I'll facilitate that. But that's not all the time, right? I try hard to keep them together and help them work through it. So much good stuff, Dr. Hillary. Thank you. As we wrap up, we just want to finish with one final question. And it's simple but complicated at the same time. What message do you think every mom should hear? This one is an easy question for me to answer. And I will say this, you're doing a great job. You're the perfect mom for your kids or your child. You're doing a great job. And if you look at yourself and you only see your mistakes, just know that that is a product of your upbringing and that you don't need to be perfect. Actually, we need to get it right about 30% of the time, says the attachment research. 30%. I mean, 70% of the time you can make mistakes. As long as you repair (laughs) those mistakes, you're good to go. And I do have a whole podcast episode on rupture and repair. I do have a whole episode on aggressive behavior. So if you're looking for like a deep dive into one of these topics, I kind of take a topic and just talk about it for 20 minutes. And all of my episodes are pretty short because, you know, life and and mom, mom life, right? So it's it's hopefully an easy listen. But if you're wondering what that repair process should look like, I talk about it. I go in depth about what to do, what to say. And also why we can let go of so much of the stress we put on ourselves and the expectations we put on ourselves to be perfect, because that's just not ever how parenting was meant to be. So I would say you are doing a great job and you are the perfect mom for your child. Thank you so much for being with us today. You are so welcome. I also will say I have a free resource if anybody feels this would be helpful. It's called six mindset shifts to transform your parenting. So you've heard me mention a couple of times today, the mindset shift here. For me, that was the game changer, was shifting my perspective on these things. The doing and the how-to came after that. The mindset shift was first. So I have a free guide. You can go to raisedresilient.com forward slash mindset. So for any mom or dad or parent who is listening and thinks, I really would love to know what mindset shifts are going to help me. There it is. I even have like a printable. So that's just another resource for listeners if that's something that would be helpful. And thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful to be here. This is a well, great conversation. Thank you for changing my life today. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I'm serious when I say that that episode was a life changer for me. There were so many great takeaways. Here are our top three. Number one, a big area of focus for Dr. Hillary is helping parents navigate the transition to life with a new baby. She explained that most expecting parents don't know that it would benefit them to prepare for the change, mainly because they don't have a clue what's coming. And there's not an easy way to help people understand that. It's a really challenging time. We need to be talking to expecting moms or moms that are preparing for pregnancy about what could happen so they have a better understanding of the transition as best as possible. Some of her suggestions included to find a therapist during the pregnancy and throughout the transition, 
she provided five evidence-based things that you can do. Number one, nutrition. Number two, move your body. Three, trying to get at least five consecutive hours of sleep, even if you need to take shifts. Number four, doing something for yourself every day. And five, getting outside. Helping to educate partners on what to look for in each other for signs of postpartum mental health struggles is also extremely important. Number two, in the episode, Dr. Mansick defined a type of parenting called respectful parenting. This is also called by other names such as peaceful, gentle, and conscious parenting. In her definition, she explained that it is a way of parenting where both the parent and child show up authentically and get their needs met. Both get to learn and make mistakes. In her opinion, the respectful approach to parenting can work for all kids, but that it doesn't look the same for all kids. She used her two children as examples, explaining how their needs are different and how she uses this approach with them. She further explained that this approach is about recognizing that both you and your child are human. You will both lose your temper, but repairing with your child is important to creating a healthy parent-child relationship. Children are also never too old to implement this process. Remain curious of their feelings and what their behavior triggers in you from your upbringing. Number three, we discussed conflict in sibling rivalry. Dr. Hillary said that there needs to be a mindset shift. Looking at conflict as normal rather than from the lens most common from previous generations that conflict is bad. It's normal for there to be conflict between siblings because they are different people. When they have conflict, they are learning how to manage it and building conflict resolution skills. It's meant to be a learning experience. Of course, there are times that need to be facilitated and they need to be kept from getting physical with each other, but recognizing that as parents, we don't have to rush in and fix all the conflict for them. Dr. Mansick encouraged parents to come in with an attitude that all are good kids. They're just having a hard time together rather than one kid who's instigating the situation. Bye bye friends. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.